Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we'll take another step in our walk through Ezekiel and investigate the infamous parable in chapters 16 and 23. Splitting up the discussion into two parts, we'll try to free these chapters from their modern baggage for now to let them speak to us more powerfully in the next episode. Well, it's already November, which is nuts, but what's also nuts is how long it's been since we've actually walked through Ezekiel together, right? It's about time we pick this thing back up before we start going, Ezekiel who? Wait, what was in chapters 8 to 11? What happened in the stuff after that? I'm guessing that's probably already happened, and uh, that's okay. You know, it's not like you're going to get quizzed on this, and it's not like it's especially easy to piece together 48 chapters of prophecy with probing judgments and, and beautiful hope. But I mean, how awesome would it be if we could do that, right? How awesome would it be if we could draw on the reservoir of Ezekiel's chapters, not just for the sound bites, but for the narrative, the themes, the unfolding argument, the whole kit and caboodle. If we could do that to face what's in front of us in life with those chapters, the election results, the prayers around the dinner table, the conversations with your agnostic coworker, whatever. I know it's been a while since I've been able to keep up with the pace of working through Ezekiel piece by piece, but I hope that hasn't caused you in any way to lose the vision of what this can mean for your all-around health and your witness and your worship. Maybe listen back through the episodes here in the Rebind if you're feeling fuzzy on Ezekiel. Maybe just crack open the book itself and, and think hard, pray hard. Ezekiel is worth not missing. None of the Bible is worth missing. All right, now that I've repitched that, um, part of the reason it's been tough carving out time for this next chunk of our beloved prophet is that Ezekiel chapter 16 comes with complications. It's not that I'm less excited to talk about this one or to learn from it. It's just that, well, um, well, a couple things. For one, this is uh, an especially infamous part of Ezekiel, meaning it's more well-known than the other parts of Ezekiel, Not because it's more loved, but because it's not. (laughs) Because we kind of wish it wasn't there. Ezekiel 16 is very graphic. The Lord basically calls the remaining citizens of Judah and, and Jerusalem out for their betrayal by using the analogy of an unfaithful wife. But the analogy doesn't hide any of the unseemly details. It actually draws them out. So this has caused a lot of issues for people who are trying to read this chapter with modern sensitivities, seeing violence and sexuality and hearing it come from God. God is judging this personified woman so harshly, it seems. So walking through Ezekiel 16 with you, I think, will mean having to look long and hard at the parts that make us uncomfortable. It'll mean clearing the air, addressing the bad rep that this has gotten so that we can listen to it afresh. So that's part of the complication with Ezekiel 16. It's got baggage. It's also massive, which is another complication. Ezekiel 16 is the seventh longest chapter out of all 1,189 chapters in the Bible when you count the words. Then on top of that, there's a very similar, almost duplicate, but not quite, chapter that echoes the parable of Ezekiel 16, which shows up in Ezekiel 23. 
Sorry, I'm not sure. <laughs> Thanks, Echo. Uh, okay. Yep. <laughs> Keeping this candid. Remember when we talked about, you know, a while back, Ezekiel's links and teasers. How he he starts an idea, drops it for a little bit, and then expands on it down the line, kind of stitching everything together, drawing you in to engage more. Well, this is like a prime example of that. 16 and 33, those chapters are really paired. So up to this point in the podcast, it worked pretty well to just do one chapter at a time. Like, what do we do if we we did that and then we got to chapter 23? How would that work? Uh, that's complicated. So you can see how in a busy work week, I would come to having to figure all this out and say, hmm, yeah, let's just talk about bread <laughs> and, and interview other people for now. Um, but it's an important chapter. And, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to split this up into two episodes. And we're going to talk about chapters 16 and 23 together. Someone's going to read Ezekiel 16 for us to start us out. That'll take a while. It's going to be like 13 minutes. And so if you want to read that on your own or skip ahead, that's fine. And read it later, whatever. Uh, instead of rehashing all of this when we get to chapter 23 down the line, what we're going to do is just have someone read that chapter and then we'll be able to keep the original progression and flow of thought of the book going that way. But then we'll just refer back to these podcast episodes for more info. Um, yeah, so so after we finish with reading for chapter 16, we'll talk about the differences between chapter 16 and 23. We'll talk about these uncomfortable concerns that people have with this. And that'll give us the chance to free both of those chapters from the baggage. So essentially part one of this episode for today is going to do the heavy lifting of making us more familiar with the chapters, getting us ready to hear them on their own terms. And then the next episode, it's going to dive into them more. It's going to explain their significance, explore their relevance, have some takeaways that we could really use right now that these chapters really offer. So hopefully that sounds like a good plan to you um, because that's what we're doing. So I've asked Caleb Ashton from Lexington, Kentucky to go ahead and read Ezekiel chapter 16 for us. This is Ezekiel 16 in the NIV translation. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant in the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord. And 
you became mine. I bathed you in water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with embroidered dresses and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen, and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of gold and silver and made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes and put them on and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Woe, woe to you, declares the sovereign Lord. In addition to all your other wickedness, you built a mound for yourself and made a lofty shrine in every public square. At every street corner, you built your lofty shrines and degraded your beauty, spreading your legs with increasing promiscuity to anyone who passed by. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your neighbors with large genitals, and aroused my anger with your increasing promiscuity. So I stretched out my hand against you and reduced your territory. I gave you over to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines who were shocked by your lewd conduct. You engaged in prostitutions with the Assyrians too, because you were insatiable. And even after that, you still were not satisfied. Then you increased your promiscuity to include Babylonia a land of merchants, but even with this, you were not satisfied. I am filled with fury against you, declares the sovereign Lord. When you do all these things, acting like a brazen prostitute. When you built your mounds at every street corner, 
and made your lofty shrines in every public square, you were unlike a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. All prostitutes received gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your lust and exposed your naked body in your promiscuity with your lovers, and because of all your detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I am going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and will strip you in front of them, and they will see you stark naked. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring on you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will deliver you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you stark naked. They will bring a mob against you who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you in the sight of many women. I will put a stop to your prostitution and you will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm and no longer angry. Because you did not remember the days of your youth but enraged me with all these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. Did you not add lewdness to all your other detestable practices? Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you like mother, like daughter. You are a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children. And you are a true sister of your sisters who despised their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Your older sister was Samaria who lived to the north of you with her daughters and your younger sister who lived to the south of you with her daughters was Sodom. You not only followed their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways, you soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. 
she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. You have done more detestable things than they and have made your sisters seem righteous by all these things you have done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters. Because your sins were more vile than theirs, they appear more righteous than you. So then be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and of Samaria and her daughters and your fortunes along with them, so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you have done in giving them comfort. And your sisters, Sodom with her daughters and Samaria with her daughters, will return to what they were before, and you and your daughters will return to what you were before. You would not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered. Even so, you are now scorned by the daughters of Edom, and all her neighbors and the daughters of the Philistines. All those around you despise you. You will bear the consequences of your lewdness and your detestable practices, declares the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve, because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then, when I make atonement for you, for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord. All right, so that is Ezekiel chapter 16, and it's sister chapter to keep the metaphor going is Ezekiel 23. So obviously in chapter 16, there's some graphic and crude imagery, right? We're talking about nakedness, prostitution, lying in blood, and sexual favors, spreading legs to every passerby. There's even reference to genitalia and, and a very debased perspective on sex, the size of Egyptian organs in verse 26. I mean, if you're feeling kind of appalled at this point, like this is the stuff you try to keep your kids from hearing, that's kind of the point. And we'll talk about that, but I just don't want us to let the shock disengage us. I'm just trying to point out what's in here honestly so we don't feel like we have to censor the Bible to learn from it or to answer the objections that are out there. Beyond the activities that this personified woman who represents Jerusalem is portrayed as doing, the other end of the shock 
for people comes with how the Lord responds. He's seen as a husband taking vengeance, gathering the people she cheated on with, he cheated on him with, and exposing her nakedness to them, punishing her in rage, handing her over to the mob. And the mob chops her up and robs her of all her clothes, burns her house down. So let's just put all that on the table for now. Let's not hide from it. We'll try to address those concerns. But before we jump into that, let's talk about chapter 23. If this was chapter 26, what we heard, how is chapter 23 related to that? Well, we're pairing the two chapters together because they're essentially the same parable that gets recycled. It's just expanded in different kinds of ways. So both chapters, 16 and 23, have similar structures. They're both really long. They both list specific sins that you know, justify this metaphor, like burning their children in sacrifice to God, serious stuff. Those are similarities. We're basically dealing with the same parable. But there are distinctions between chapter 16 and 23 too. So 23 focuses more on the story of two sisters rather than the husband-wife relationship of the Lord and Jerusalem in chapter 20, uh, 16. So it's it's drawing out more in that later chapter the lessons from the northern tribes of Israel that this Jewish remnant not only didn't learn from, but actually amped up in unspeakable ways. And, and there's also an amping up in another way in chapter 23. The lewd, crude, shocking vocabulary and descriptions actually also get amped up. You know, I, I was kind of debating whether to really repeat them here, but you can... You can read about it in, in chapter 23 when we get there. Um, specific body parts and, and sexual acts are described in greater detail in ways that are kind of revolting or confusing at least because we're used to the devil, not God's people trying to talk about sex that way. And again, that's exactly the point. It's not supposed to feel right because that's how contrary to the marriage relationship they've been living. Chapter 16 focuses on the... Um, religious spiritual betrayal, chapter 23, a little bit more on the political power games and betrayals that way, de uh, depending on um, these other nations. Um, you know, chapter 23, as opposed to chapter 20, uh, 16, just to state the obvious, also comes much later in Ezekiel. So we have seven intervening chapters that continue to poke and probe and accuse and expose the subtle and not so subtle crimes against humanity and God. So by the time we get back to the adultery metaphor in chapter 23, it actually hits us harder and we're more willing to receive its rebuke. And, and the amped up nature of the second part really drives the overwhelming emotions past our barriers even more effectively. Okay, so those are some of the similarities and differences between Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23. Hopefully that wasn't too much scrambled overload. I just want to explain why we're tackling both of those chapters here together. But I also wanted to you know, explain how they're unique so we don't miss that part of it too. But now let's talk about the problems that this causes for modern readers when, when they work through these chapters. Let's untangle the doubts and the offensiveness of this without blunting the sharp edges that are actually supposed to stay sharp and offensive. I think the easiest way to break down the uneasiness people feel about these chapters is to split it up into two categories. So the first is degrading, I'm sorry, I'm going to say that again. The first is the degrading picture we think this paints of women in general. And the second is the degrading picture we think this paints of God. 
let's start with the first. Does Ezekiel 16 and 23 try so hard to shock us about Jerusalem's long history of betrayal? Does it push the hyperbole so far that it actually damages its listeners' perspectives on male-female relationships? I'm going to say no. Uh, Even with the shock here, pushing as far as it can, it's not done in a way that generalizes or belittles women or sexuality. First thing to realize is that this metaphor is a metaphor. It's not actually a woman being talked about. In both chapters, it says Jerusalem is the one that's being represented as a mature and maturing woman and and spouse. Now, you could try to chalk that up to cultural patriarchy and say, you know, they're making the woman a bad guy, but there are plenty of male bad guys in the story too, and the more simple explanation here is just linguistics. Hebrew, like many languages, have masculine and feminine words. They're just built that way, whether or not they're trying to associate masculine or feminine features with them. And geography words just tended to be linguistically feminine. So if you're trying to personify a city like Jerusalem, you're going to do it with the female. The feminine for the feminine, it just just makes sense. People got this. But also, people got that this was metaphor, right? Metaphor is pretty universally understood. And so Ezekiel's audience wouldn't be viewing this as an attack on femininity, but as a charge against Jerusalem. And that's what it tells us as well. So that's the obvious objective answer here. But the attacks people lay against these chapters for their patriarchal abuse are usually more sophisticated than that. I'm I'm going to totally acknowledge that. You know, why, for example, is the woman in this metaphor held responsible for her liaisons while the men get an invitation to abuse her further without consequence? But I think that question misses the point. Uh, We could look at other passages in the Bible that talk about God's judgments against enemy nations. I mean, heck, we even get more of that in the midpoint of Ezekiel in the second half. But this is focusing on Jerusalem's crimes and punishments. The the continued violence and immorality of the male figures in this adapted metaphor is not in any way justification for male abuse of power. The male figure that's actually presented as the ideal is Yahweh, the Lord, who protects and marries and lavishes the woman with love. Well, these abusers are the ones that the personified woman in the story actually goes after. So when the Lord exposes her nakedness to them, essentially saying, all right, fine, if you want to relentlessly do this, I'll help you. It isn't the Lord's abusiveness that gets highlighted, but the deadbeat posers and cheaters that she chose instead of him for the cheap and quick thrills. I mean, the laws in the Old Testament against sexual immorality aren't gendered. Male or female, marital betrayal is marital betrayal. So seeing the woman in this story, the way the Lord, the real man, metaphorically speaking, saw her, actually elevates her. It dignifies her beyond what she was even wanting, what Jerusalem was wanting. It's the way the outsiders, the cheaters, look at her, who she's lusting after, that's degrading. And it's the consequences of that that's degrading. It's not God or his prophet who are dragging Jerusalem down to her abuse. It's Jerusalem who insists on abusing herself with abusers and cheating on God And that's what gets exposed and legally pursued in this divine 
discourse and parable. But now, for what I think is probably the most persistent doubt that that crops up with this, uh, even for generally trusting and mature Christians, and that's the explicit nature of the sexuality. Why talk about sexual organs in Ezekiel 16 and 23? Why, why go into detail about spreading legs and other such graphic activities? Isn't that the kind of indecency that the Bible wants us to avoid? How can it glorify and engage in immodest imagination and tell us not to do so? Okay, well, first let me say that this explicitness also is not gendered. So if we want to say it's a problem, like, okay, we can totally talk about that, but but the inappropriate sexual details do not instill any kind of inherent untamed inferiority for females. You know, the foreign nations like Egypt are all equally guilty and and detailed, and they're male too. So let's just talk about the inappropriate details. Why are they there in the first place? Well, there's a few things that I think should be said. First, we got to remember that Ezekiel's shock and offensiveness is intentional. It's there, but it's filled with purpose. So if we got to the point where we enjoyed the sexual details of the affairs in these metaphors, like they were some kind of written pornography, we don't have to read much further to see that the Lord has the exact opposite reaction to them and that we're supposed to be disgusted along with him. For people who were so self-deceived and convinced they were the perfect, invincible spouse of God. And to, to hear these kind of graphic details would be horrendous. How could that even be spoken, let alone done, they would think? And then they'd realize, oh, that's actually the same reaction God has to the things those metaphors are representing. That's actually how revolting and inappropriate and offensive and uncomfortable my betrayal of my relationship with God is. Cheating on God is no joke. It's as extreme and as serious and as emotional and offensive as it gets. So that's one part of the answer. But there's more we could say, though, that we don't have time to talk about this forever. Think about this kind of vocabulary and explicitness from another angle. Think about um, Proverbs and Song of Songs. There are actually pretty explicit sexual details in those books too, but a lot of it is positive over there. So in modern America, our our mind, we, we associate sexual transparency and positivity together with just pornography. But that just shows how much we need the scriptures to reshape our perspectives instead of avoiding the scriptures because our perspectives don't line up. The blunt sexual language of Proverbs and Song of Songs talking about the beauty of marriage relationships is not there to uncover places we shouldn't be looking. It's there to affirm the parts of real human life that are sensitive and important and reinvest them with the intentions that God built them with. So when Proverbs 5 talks about avoiding the adulterer, it says, look, yeah, that barely clothed, photoshopped woman on the billboard is enticing. Her lips drip honey. Her words are smoother than oil. The Bible actually acknowledges that. It doesn't pretend like the only way to avoid succumbing to temptation is to pretend it isn't there. 
Proverbs 5 says, her lips drip honey, but they're filled with poison, basically, is the point. She'll send you straight to the grave. She'll sap your life, destroy your integrity in the community. But man, your spouse, the wife of your youth, let her breasts always satisfy you, it says. Be lost in her love forever. Now, is that pornographic? No, because its intention is not for us to pervert those images or those relationships or sexuality. It's to expose the perversions that are there and that entice us and call us back to the real way, the good way, the God-given way that those sensitive subjects were meant to be enjoyed. So let's just imagine a hypothetical for a second. Would we rather have a Bible that was appropriate for all ages and therefore only addressed the parts of life that children could experience and fully comprehend? I mean, that would make the scriptures like a giant Blue's Clues episode. Or, or would we actually rather have the full range of human experiences acknowledged, explained, given a place in God's assessment and wisdom? I think if we're honest, we'd say the latter. And we realize that that's exactly what we have, even if it means we need some sensitivity for how we work through these chapters like this with with children or or with mixed audiences, like for sure. So the, the sexual explicitness of Ezekiel 16 and 23 does not glorify abuse. It does not encourage perverted thinking. It does not degrade human sexuality or femininity. What it does is elevate the crimes which Jerusalem ignored to a level of repulsiveness and offensiveness that forces us to realize what's wrong with those portrayed ways of thinking on all levels, pretty much. Okay, but all that really just covers the first category of objections and doubts, really, which is the human level of what this portrays in Ezekiel 16 and 23. But what about the other side of this, the picture of God? Well, it's true that chapter 23 is especially focusing on the betrayal of Jerusalem, all the terrible ways they've abused the gracious love of God and perverted his gifts toward their own ends. And so the punishments are really drawn out in that chapter. So 2335 as a sample verse here says, Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you must bear the consequences of your indecency and promiscuity. But remember that chapters 16 and 23 are paired together. And in that chapter we heard read today, chapter 16, honestly, if we read it carefully, the whole metaphor is not just an indictment and negative hyperbole. It's a vivid and humbling picture of God's devotion and mercy. The Lord is depicted as someone who finds a child who is abandoned at birth, unloved and uncared for, and was thrown out into the open field, thrashing around in blood. And he says, live, live. The Lord is the one who adopts this dying baby, makes her thrive, fills her with life like a scenic field with lush vegetation. He doesn't misstep in anything. She she matures, she reaches marrying age, and even then, he clothes her. He covers her, pledges himself to her, marries her. He takes care of her again, washes, rinses, anoints, adorns, and adores. But it was the splendor he gifted to her that she turned to and trusted in 
and used to backstab God in pretty much every terrible way you could think for that loving husband. I mean, the punishments in response to that total unfaithfulness were not even severe at first. He takes back some of the ornaments she abuses, but then she kept up the prostitution, metaphorically speaking, because she refused to be satisfied. What's emphasized in the major sentencing that happens in the chapter is addressing the injustice and pain with equal justice and consequence. It's fairness. But we can't miss the relentless mercy that led up to that that was denied every step. Jealous wrath, that verse 18 says is driving this judgment, is nothing other than the other side of the coin of God's loving devotion. And in ways that are still almost unbelievable to me, the chapter ends with a declaration of hope. Right? Like we know how rare that is in the first half of Ezekiel. And it's not like they even did anything to apologize. Verse 52 declares, be ashamed about this. But then verse 53 declares, I will restore your fortunes. You have to bear the consequences, verse 58 says, but I will deal with you according to what you've chosen, breaking our marriage, but I will still remember it and reestablish a permanent covenant with you. And you will know I am the Lord when I make atonement for you, for all you did. And you remember, like, wow, we really want to say that's an image of God we want to skip? That's incredible. Okay, well, I hope today by chasing down these, these doubts and objections just a little bit, these chapters have at least been freed from any baggage that you might have with them, whether you've read them a lot before or not. Next episode is when we'll really get the chance to dive into this metaphor in Ezekiel 16 and 23 and draw out some of those unique contributions in here. But today was a chance to hopefully just clear the air so we can let that speak when we get there the next episode. Ezekiel 16 and 23 is not shock for sheer sake of being offensive, and neither is any part of the Bible that seems R-rated. We have to think critically about the purpose behind the rhetorical strategies in Scripture and whether our first impression hesitations actually factor in what they're trying to communicate on their own terms. So for those of you that struggle with these chapters and their, their language and, and depictions, I, yeah, I'd encourage you to read sensitively and to share this sensitively, right, depending on the audience. But to read them more instead of less as well, to see the dignity that the father figure acknowledges and affirms in this Jerusalem woman, to see the adornment that the husband lavishes on this young bride. I'd encourage you to keep that feeling of revulsion instead of trying to explain it away, but to think about what's behind the metaphor that we're supposed to be disgusted at. So before we wrap up here, I want to say that the rebind is going to only happen because of the audio mastering of Andrew Horning's sound and the graphic design of Adam Anderson. If you found this stuff helpful, please spread the word. Follow us on social media. Leave a review on iTunes. Check out the, the Patreon page. And of course, tune in next time to learn more from these chapters. The Bible, there's so much riches in here that we don't want to miss. 
But as we think of the dignity and grace that God has shown to us today, and we think of how horrible it really is to pervert that, how serious and heartbreaking it is to cheat on him, I want to close by praying the last verses of Ezekiel 16 back to God to make the scripture we read, whether or not it's a prayer personal, and pray it back. It's an exercise I'd, I'd highly recommend for you as well. So, Yahweh, Lord God, we know you deal with us according to what we've done in all the ways we have despised the promises and covenants you've made with us. We are humbled by how you remember those promises, even then, and establish a more more permanent marriage in the new covenant you've given us with Jesus. We remember our ways before coming to Christ, and we're ashamed the way that these sisters and these metaphors are ashamed. We know through all this that you are the Lord, that this is who you are. When we look at the atonement you've made in Christ and as we remember our disgrace that you've covered, and it's in Christ's name we pray, 